Part 6. Very Bad Timing So the timing of Anthony Burns' arrest couldn't have been any worse. That same week in Boston, there was a women's rights convention, an abolitionist convention, and a free soil convention going on at the same time. So there were even more anti-slavery folks in the city than usual. Now, the Free Soil Convention was gathered as a reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, passed the Monday before Burns' arrest. This is the most important piece of legislation that we cover on the show, so just, you know, pay attention. But by 1854, two new territories had been established, Kansas Territory and Nebraska Territory, and they would soon be applying for statehood. Both of those territories were situated comfortably north of the 36th parallel, which means slavery would not be allowed. But that's a big problem for plantation owners and ambitious men in the South. Because if they were going to cultivate that land, they would have to actually pay their laborers. So they will leverage their power in the government to overturn the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and replace it with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Basically, the Kansas-Nebraska Act removed the hard line banning slavery and let territories decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to add slavery to the territorial constitution. So now Kansas, Nebraska, or any territory could be admitted to the Union as a slave state, no matter where it was. And every new slave state admitted to the Union meant two more pro-slavery senators, more pro-slavery congressmen, and more pro-slavery electoral votes with the three-fifths clause. This peculiar institution, this disgusting act of despotism could spread from coast to coast. The South was doing everything it could to guarantee the existence of slavery in America in the 20th century. And with every new slave state admitted to the Union, the demand for this human property would go up. And once again, it would increase the value of the estates of the most powerful plantation owners. Northern farmers looking to head west simply couldn't compete with large plantations receiving free labor from their human property. If Kansas or Nebraska entered the Union as a slave state, it would destroy the livelihood of thousands of Northern families who had already established farms in the area. And that is why Boston was on the verge of rioting on the day of Anthony Burns' arrest. Part 7. The Trial of Anthony Burns. It's Thursday evening, May 25th, 1854, Utica, New York. John Brown is pacing back and forth at his lawyer's office. News of Burns' arrest had already arrived by telegram just a few hours earlier, and it was all Brown could think about. Brown was to spend the entire weekend in Utica assisting his legal counsel because his debts and dodgy business practices had followed him all the way to the hidden hills of the Adirondack Mountains. A number of New England woolen mills had levied a lawsuit against the Perkins & Brown Company for about $60,000. A year earlier, Brown successfully won the suit. But the woolen mills appealed, and if Brown didn't answer to this appeal, he would be on the hook for even more tens of thousands of dollars. Brown's lawyer, Mr. Jenkins, was reading out the details of the appeal when Brown suddenly, out of nowhere, slams his fist onto the table. I'm going to Boston, Brown shouts. Going to Boston, said Jenkins. Why do you want to go to Boston? Anthony Burns must be released or I will die in the attempt. 
Mr. Jenkins begs Brown to stay. They had been working on this case for more than four years, and if Brown could just take care of this appeal, he would finally be free of this $60,000 lawsuit. After a lot of arguing, Brown begrudgingly decides to stay. And he spends the rest of the weekend pouring through the newspapers and sulking in his lawyer's office. Brown knew what violence was about to take place in Boston, and John Brown wanted to be a part of it. Meanwhile, back in Boston, about two dozen militia volunteers arrived at the courthouse through the rear entrance to assist the marshal, Mr. Friedman, and his six deputies to guard Burns as a rowdy crowd of nearly 200 people had already gathered outside of the courthouse in protest. The crowd eventually got their hands on a giant piece of wood, and they began battering down the courthouse doors. When they finally broke through, chaos ensued. As the marshals hurried Burns up the stairs into an office, a gunshot was heard in the lobby. James Batchelder, one of the militia volunteers, proclaims, I have been stabbed. However, the crowd is eventually subdued, and Burns remains in custody. Later that evening, James Batchelder will die of his wounds. And the next evening, as John Brown wallows in self-pity in his lawyer's office in New York, Anthony Burns sits quietly in chains under constant supervision. He's wondering if that walk home from his job was his last moment of freedom. But if Burns listened carefully from his window, he could probably faintly hear the dull commotion echoing from Fenial Hall about a five-minute walk from the courthouse building where Anthony Burns is locked up stands Fenial Hall, where 80 years earlier Samuel Adams would rally support for the revolution. By the 1850s, it became the main rallying point for the Boston abolitionist movement. And that night, between 500 and 1,000 people showed up in an impromptu rally to support Anthony Burns. Even Boston hadn't seen a gathering like this before. Thousands more tried to attend, but the crowd was already pouring onto the streets. There were a number of rousing speeches made that night. And any city official listening in that night would have been disturbed at what some of these speakers were advocating. George Russell mentioned how the city of Boston has yielded and yielded until compromise had become concession and concession had become a disgrace. John L. Swift, a lawyer from Cambridge, Massachusetts, asked, What constitution? There is no constitution. On Monday last, it received 113 stabs and died under the operation. He was talking about the 113 votes cast in favor of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Here are a few resolutions read to the crowd that night to follow on the following day. Resolved that the time has come to declare and to demonstrate the fact that no slaveholder can carry his prey from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Resolved that that which is not just is not law, and that which is not law ought not to be obeyed. Resolved that leaving every man to determine for himself the mode of resistance, we are united in the glorious sentiment of our revolutionary fathers. Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Resolved that of all tyrants who have ever cursed the earth, they are the most cruel and beastly who deny the natural right of a man to his own body, a father to his own child, of a husband to his own wife. Resolved 
that the South has declared in the passage of the Nebraska Bill that no faith is to be kept with freedom. So in the name of the living God and on the part of the North, we declare that henceforth and forever, no compromises should be made with slavery. But the most rousing speech of the night came from Wendell Phillips. You have called me to this platform for what? Do you wish to know what I want? I want to see that man set free in the streets of Boston. Fellow citizens, tomorrow is to determine whether we are worthy of our city government, whether we are ready to do the duty which they leave to us. There is no law in Massachusetts, and I hold when the law ceases, the sovereignty of the people begins. I am against squatter sovereignty in Nebraska, and I am against kidnapper sovereignty in the streets of Boston. A poor, ignorant man arrested by a law, overawed by his master, surrounded with jailers, dragged into court at the earliest hour, about to be hurried into slavery without friends, a moments of deliberation, or the aid of counsel. This is Boston. I say again, when law ceases in the city of Boston, it is time for the sovereignty of the people to begin. The city government stands neutral. Let us govern the city. Later on that same night, the marshal who had arrested Anthony Burns, Officer Freeman, wired President Franklin Pierce via telegraph, informing him of the situation unfolding at Finial Hall and about the possibility of violence the following day. So around midnight, Saturday morning, by Pierce's executive order, 150 militia infantry rifles, a detachment of 50 marine rifles, and the Colombian artillery were dispatched via steamship and by first light that morning, they began their march towards the courthouse. Saturday morning by 9 a.m., a crowd of between two and 3,000 Bostonians were gathered outside on Court Square in protest. They faced a force of dozens of Boston police officers, a piece of field artillery, and 200 armed soldiers who were occupying the front steps of the courthouse. The face-off was tense. A few men were arrested for attempting to incite a riot, but things still seemed relatively calm. A few moments later, a Boston artillery unit that was on drill and unaware of the situation noticed all the commotion on Court Square, and it posted up in support of the soldiers pointing a second cannon towards the crowd. The added commotion of the second piece of artillery delayed court proceedings by another 90 minutes. Finally, by 11 o'clock, the mayor had arrived and ordered the artillery pieces to be removed immediately. He then addressed the crowd, expressing his regret at the current situation. But he insisted the laws of the city, state, and country would be enforced if need be. Though few left the scene, things were calm enough to continue with the day's proceedings. However, on Saturday, there was no decision made, and the case would resume on Monday morning. Following that day in court, 
Edward Parker, Colonel Suttle's lawyer, released a statement saying the value of the human property was estimated around $1,200. Within hours, Burns' sympathizers had raised that exact amount and offered to purchase Burns from Suttle. Suttle refused. $300 more was quickly added to the offer, and once again, Suttle refused. The sun rose and fell on Boston that day without a verdict or an instance of violence. And then Monday's proceedings looked much like Saturday's. Thousands showing up on Court Square, staring down hundreds of rifles with no verdict. Again, the same thing on Wednesday. Finally, Friday morning, the final verdict was to be announced. At 9 o'clock, once again, thousands showed up outside of the courthouse. But throughout the last week, soldiers had been trickling in all throughout New England. Not since the American Revolution has a force of this size occupied the streets of Boston. To give you an idea of the scale of this force, I will read you the official report of all of the units under the command of Major General Edmonds. 1st Battalion, Light Dragoons. Company A, National Lancers, 78, rank and file. Company B, Boston Light Dragoons, 75, rank and file. 5th Regiment Artillery, Company A, Boston Artillery, 37 guns. Company B, Columbian Artillery, 78 guns. Company C, Washington Artillery, 40 guns. Company D, Vicksburg Artillery, 81 guns. Company E, American Artillery, 80 guns. Company F, Webster Artillery, 35 guns. Company G, Bay State Artillery, 37 guns. Company H, Shields Artillery, 46 guns. 5th Regiment's Light Infantry, commanded by Colonel Charles L. Holbrook. Company A, Boston Light Infantry, 45 guns. Company B, New England Guards, 38 guns. Company C, Pulaski Guards, 42 guns. Company D, Boston Light Guard, 40 guns. Company E, Boston City Guards, 36 guns. Company F, Independent Boston Fusiliers, 36 guns. Company G, Washington Light Infantry, 48 guns. Company H, McCanny Infantry, 42 guns. 3rd Battalion, Light Infantry under Major Robert Burback. Company A, National Guard, 33 guns. Company B, Union Guards, 40 guns. Company C, Sirscheld Guards, 39 guns. Cadets Divisionary Corps, 80 guns. The mayor delivered the following proclamation to the massive, silent crowd. To the citizens of Boston, to secure order throughout the city this day, Major General Edmonds and the Chief of Police will make such disposition of the respective forces under their commands as will best protect that most important object and they are clothed with all discretionary powers to sustain the laws of the land. All well-disposed citizens 
and other persons are urgently requested to leave those streets which may be found necessary to clear temporarily and under no circumstances to obstruct or molest any officer, civil or military, in the lawful discharge of his duty. Following the mayor's proclamation, Commissioner Loring entered the courthouse to deliver his verdict. Commissioner Loring detailed the conversation between Colonel Suttle and Anthony Burns just nine days earlier. Anthony, have I not been a generous and merciful master to you all those years? Yes. Yes, sir. According to Commissioner Loring, that was an admission to being Charles Suttle's slave. And for that reason, Anthony Burns was ordered to return to Alexandria with Charles Suttle that day. Burns shook his head, but he remained totally silent. He was brought back to his cell. Thousands of people hung black sheets over their windows in mourning of the decision. As the authorities were preparing for his transport to the docks outside, Theodore Parker was granted permission to visit poor Burns before he was sent back to Virginia. The Reverend apologized and asked if there was anything he could do. Anthony Burns began to cry. He only requested that he be given his old clothes back. He was wearing a fine black suit which had been donated to him for his trial. But he admitted that the suit, as nice as it was, wasn't going to do him any good where he was going. The Anti-Slavery Society in Boston over the last week had raised over $5,000 and once more offered to purchase Burns for that amount, and once again Charles Suttle refused. At 2.30, this strange procession began. With his saber drawn, Federal Marshal Officer Freeman and his six deputies along with 125 militiamen, led Burns from the courthouse into a terrifying parade of 153 cavalrymen, 826 soldiers, and one cannon. And that occupying military force of over 1,000 armed white men will walk Anthony Burns, bound by chains, through the streets of Boston. The parade turns down State Street. The crowds pressed into the sidewalk. The procession then turned off onto Commercial Street, catching a number of onlookers by surprise. Many were beaten to the ground with rifle butts. The procession passed the Commonwealth Building, where someone dumped a barrel of cayenne pepper from the window onto some soldiers. A bottle of sulfuric acid was thrown from the Commonwealth Building as well, but the bottle shattered onto the ground and no major harm was done. At the corner of Chatham and Commercial Streets, a teamster on his horse attempted to pass a line formed by Company A of the Boston Artillery. He was ordered back but refused to go and swore at the soldiers. One of the company thrust his bayonet into the horse. The man fell to the ground and a crowd gathered near the forces. The captain ordered the company to fire onto the crowd. But a lieutenant quickly countermanded the order before any shots were fired. The horse quickly bled to death on the street. Another man named John Clark was enraged and began scolding the soldiers. He received a saber blow to the head and was quickly sent to the hospital. The whole city was closed. The economy shut down the entire day to oblige this military procession. Thousands looked on from the streets, windows, and rooftops on the avenues leading to the wharf. From one building, people started assailing the artillery pieces with bricks and mortar. 
The building was cleared out by a group of soldiers at the point of bayonets. Finally, Anthony Burns was led up to Tea Wharf and onto the steamship called the John Taylor, where Charles Suttles sat waiting for him. The tension began to rise because Colonel Delaney insisted that the field piece also be loaded onto the ship. After the delay, the doors to the steamship were closed. It lifted its anchors, and the John Taylor pulled away from T-Wharf. The deed was done. Anthony Burns will go back to Alexandria and continue a life of slavery in Virginia. Part 8 A Boston Ballad by Walt Whitman 1854 To get betimes in Boston town, I rose this morning early. Here's a good place at the corner. I must stand and see the show. Clear the way, Jonathan. Way for the president's marshal. Way for the government cannon. Way for the federal foot and dragoons. And apparitions copiously tumbling. I love to look on the stars and stripes. I hope the fives play Yankee Doodle. How bright shine the cutlasses of the foremost troops. Every man holds his revolver, marching stiff through Boston town. A fog follows. Antiques of the same come limping. Some appear wooden-legged, and some appear bandaged and bloodless. Why, this is indeed a show. It is called the dead out of the earth. The old graveyards of the hills have hurried to see. Phantoms, phantoms countless by flank and rear. Cocked hats of mouthy mold, crutches made of mist. Arms in slings, old men leaning on young men's shoulders. What troubles you, Yankee phantoms? What is this chattering of bare gums? Does the ague convulse your limbs? Do you mistake your crutches for firelocks and level them? If you blind your eyes with tears, you will not see the president's marshal. If you groan such groans, you might balk the government cannon. Now for shame, old maniacs. Bring down those tossed arms and let your white hair be. Here, gape your grandsons. Their wives gaze at them from the windows. See how well-dressed, see how orderly they conduct themselves. Worse, worse, can you stand it? Are you retreating? Is this hour with the living too dead for you? Retreat then, pell-mell, to your graves. To your graves, back! Back to the hills, old limpers. I do not think you belong here anyhow. But there is one that belongs here. Shall I tell you what it is, gentlemen of Boston? I will whisper it to the mayor. He shall send a committee to England. They shall get a grant from the parliament, go with the cart to the royal vault, dig out King George's coffin, unwrap him quick from the grave clothes, box up his bones for a journey, find a swift Yankee clipper. Oh, here is freight for you, black-bellied clipper. Up with your anchor, shake out your sails, and steer straight towards Boston Bay. Now, 
call for the president's marshal again. Bring out the government cannon. Fetch home the roarers from Congress. Make another procession. Guard it with foot and dragoons. The centerpiece for them. Look, all orderly citizens, look from the windows, women. The committee open the box. They set up the regal ribs, glue those that will not stay, clap the skull on top of the ribs, and clap a crown on top of the skull. You've got your revenge, old buster. The crown has come to its own, and more than its own. Stick your hands in your pockets, Jonathan. You are a made man from this day. You are mighty cute. And here is one of your bargains. Here's a brief epilogue on Anthony Burns. Upon his return to Alexandria, of course, he was brutally beaten for his insurrection and he would never recover the vitality of his own youth. About a year later, he sold to a different plantation and a black church in Indiana is going to purchase Burns for $1,300. He was eventually recognized as a full-fledged minister under the Baptist church. And in 1860, he moves to Canada. And then in 1862, he will die as a free man. Next time on John Brown's Body. Hopefully we're going to realize that the first three episodes were the prologue to a much more intense story. We're going to find out what happens out west in Kansas and how John Brown receives his nickname of Osawatomie Brown. Once again, all of the information for today's podcast came from The Life and Letters of John Brown by Franklin Benjamin Sandburn and the abolition newspaper The Liberator. If you are really enjoying today's podcast, uh, you can now uh, donate a, a monthly payment of 99 cents per month, $5 per month, or a full $10 per month through the Anchor homepage. Uh, if you are so inclined uh, and you want to help support this podcast, uh, support this unemployed artist living here in Amsterdam, uh, you can now do that through the Anchor homepage for John Brown's body on their website. Otherwise, folks, stick in there. We'll get through this, and I'll keep pumping these episodes out for you. You have a great day.